Well, if you've got a Bible, if you would turn to Joshua chapter 9 today, uh, Joshua 9, and uh, let's pray and, and ask for God to, to teach us something here today. Uh, Father, we're here today to worship you uh, for being a God who is, is for your people. Um, that, that's a gracious thing that you would be for us. It, it's astounding that you would be. Uh, we, we know that that came at great cost, that, that you, you sent your son to spill his blood so that we could be forgiven and so that we could receive your favor. And, and now as we look to your word, we just pray that you would remind us of, of the truth that your being for us doesn't mean that there's no opposition. Remind us of the truth that though we have real obstacles and real enemies, ultimately your grace will triumph and truth will prevail. Uh, give us confidence in that to equip us for serving you this week with our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Scripture says that if God is for us, who can be against us in Romans 8, 31? And we might be tempted to think, especially at first, that this means that if God's for us, then we can expect things to go well most of the time. Um, that, that if God's on our side, that means the wind will be at our backs in all of our endeavors, that all of our efforts will bear fruit, that things will always just kind of fall into place for us, because God's in it. And, and we can believe that if we don't see easy success, then God must not be in it. But in the book of Joshua, we see this history of God being at work on behalf of his people. Uh, he's told his people to lay claim to the land. Time had come for them to claim it, just like God had told them that they would. The land is now filled with wicked inhabitants. Their wickedness is fulfilled. It's complete. And, and though the wicked prosper, that's not forever. Uh, Proverbs tells us that the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And, and now it's time for God's people to go into the land, cast out the wicked people who are practicing child sacrifice and lawlessness and corruption, and to establish righteousness in the land. And now in our cynical moder modern reading of things, we might read this as a time that these marauding Israelites stole the land from the innocent Canaanites. But really, we should read this much more like we would read the stories of Nazis being defeated and concentration camps being liberated. Uh, this is a noble quest. God was on their side. And he's calling his people to go in and assert the authority of his law over everything. And so we saw in last week's passage that he had his people put his law, his commands and all the rewards for keeping it and the curses for breaking it up on the side of the mountains in stone and the Israelites, by, by doing that, were saying that this law applies to absolutely everybody in the land. God called them to go in and occupy. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God had told them to offer peace to the cities as they went. And if the wicked cities wouldn't open up and wouldn't accept those terms of peace, then God said to conquer. And so the Israelites here are being used by God in judgment and to establish righteousness. They were taking a land that God had given them. They're following his requirements for how that was to be done. God was on their side. They were acting in faith. He was behind them in their endeavors. But it was anything but smooth sailing. And that's where we pick up in Joshua chapter 9. Joshua 9, 1, it says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So the wicked kings in the land heard that God was at work, and as soon as they heard that God was moving in their land, they united forces against God and against his people. And so rather than encountering a smooth transition into the promised land, the Israelites encountered concerted, hell-bent opposition. 
What they met was opposition to what they were doing and what God had even ordained for them to do in that land. So it was just like King David would later sing in Psalm 2. He said, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So God lays claim to the nations. And then the nations in response rage and, and respond, respond to God by raging and plotting to overthrow his rule. They set themselves against the Lord. They set themselves up against his Christ. And they say, let's get out from under his authority. Now, ultimately, that effort is in vain, according to verse 1. You don't successfully oppose God in the end. The fact that God is for us means that nobody will successfully be against us at the end of the day. But the fact that on the last day we'll be able to look back and see how God triumphed over all of his enemies doesn't mean that nobody tries to oppose us or to oppose the work of God until we get there. In fact, God's work in us, in our families, in our church, in our communities will always meet stiff resistance. And these people react in resolute opposition to God because God's laying claim to their land. God's people are moving in. This is going to be a transfer of ownership, and they didn't like that. If you were to have me over to your house for dinner, there's, there's a decent chance that that would be enjoyable for you, like 50-50 or so. And, uh, and, and that would be fine, but if I bring boxes and I start moving in, that's going to be significantly less enjoyable for you. And then and if I start saying, well, this is my place now, all the more so. Um, it's one thing to be a guest. It's another thing to claim the place as your own. And God's people are not making a small claim here. They're saying, this land is ours. God's given this to us. They're not coming for dinner. They're, they're moving in. They're taking over. And so when God is claiming their cities, the people who are, who are used to being their own kings, used to making their own gods, used to determining their own destinies, they think, are responding with rage. And likewise today, when, when God claims something that we desperately want to keep for ourselves, we can be tempted to respond with rage. Which means that we as Christians can expect for the Christian message, for the claims of Jesus over all of life, to be opposed and rejected at times. Now, there are forms of Christianity in our day that don't elicit any negative response from the world around us. There are chameleon forms that don't lay claim to any sphere of life in any way that would cause someone to, to give anything up. Now, there are really heretical and false forms of Christianity that say that you don't need to repent. You don't need to turn from anything because you're already okay. You're okay in living a life with no consideration for the poor. You're okay in keeping all your resources to yourself. You're okay in whatever expression of sexuality you prefer. You're, you're okay in your priorities. It's a Christianity that lays no claim on anything, that doesn't require any change of mind, any change of worldview, any change of lifestyle, any effort, or any effort to resist desires, and it doesn't offend anybody but God. Nobody rages against a Christianity that says you're already okay. Or one that just comes along and, and parrots back all the same things the culture around it is saying. But when Jesus really comes in, when Jesus comes into the land of your life, he lays claim on everything. I mean, that's what it means when God's giving the law here. He's claiming things as his own. And this is the most infuriating thing about God to people. Everybody's fine with us having a God that's basically like a fairy that we pray to or a trinket that we collect. 
Nobody really cares if you pray to your invisible friend. Nobody's against Christianity because of the good feelings that we get in worship. It's the demands of God, the law of God that offends. We hear those and we say, well, don't tell me what to do. Don't impose anything on me. I'm my own. It's when God comes claiming our lives through his laws that, that we resist. And Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. They'll allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They'll allow him to be in his almondry to dispense alms and bestow his bounties. They'll allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God. And his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we're hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. But it's God upon the throne that we love to preach. It's God upon his throne whom we trust. You know, Christianity that holds up Jesus and says there is no life in him without repenting and turning to him is simultaneously the most grace-filled, redeeming, life-giving, healing, true faith imaginable and the most offensive thing we could ever think of. There's no neutral response to biblical Christianity. Jesus claims it all. He claims our lifestyles. He claims our ethics. He claims our money. He claims our character formation. He claims our calendar and our families and our priorities and our identities and our marriages and our sexuality and our views of right and wrong. He tells us who God is and who God is not. He tells us our purpose and what we were made for. He marches into the land and he says, this is all mine. And we can open up the gates to him and welcome his reign and have peace with him and life with him and find him to be far better than any other king that we've served in the past. Or we'll plot and resist and rage, which will ultimately be in vain. But there is real opposition. And we can expect to see resistance to the work of God in the world around us, which means that even though the gospel is spreading throughout the world and many people are turning to Jesus, there are more Christians now than ever, the church is thriving globally, it's not smooth sailing. So there's a natural opposition to God's work that comes from not wanting a new king, but also there is a spiritual opposition to it. I mean, not to get overly weird or anything, but we have a spiritual enemy in Satan who hates Christ who hates you and your faith, who hates your family, who hates a faithful church. Scripture speaks of our enemies being the world, the flesh, and the devil, where, where we have the enemy of our own sin, which is formidable. We have the values of the culture around us that stand as, as our enemies sometimes. And then we have the spiritual enemy in the devil himself. And I know that in the West, we like to downplay this. We like to downplay the spiritual aspects. We like to downplay the weirder things. But there is a real devil who is really opposed to God's work and his people. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we have a real enemy in Satan who is not neutral toward Christians. He isn't neutral toward biblical faith. He isn't neutral toward your marriage. He's not neutral toward your kids. And he's not neutral toward the church. 
and it seems to have been heightened during the pandemic, but there have been a few times where our staff members just in the last couple of years have sat in almost shock after meetings, walking people through some of the assaults of the enemy, where it's just so dark. And faith doesn't advance in a life or in a home or in a church or in a city without the enemy taking note and raising up adversaries. Those two things always go hand in hand. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, Paul says, but I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Both at the same time. For every opportunity we use for the spread of the gospel, we can expect adversaries. I mean, I don't know of anyone who's spreading the gospel today who doesn't have detractors, who doesn't have people attacking and accusing I don't know many pastors who, who this year didn't experience big attacks on their families. Almost all are telling stories about people slandering them in their church on social media. There is a real opposition to the gospel, even when God is clearly at work spreading it. And it's important to know that. It's important to know that we do have an enemy who makes the Christian life very hard. And it's good to occasionally talk about his work because 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that we are not to be outwitted by him and we're not to be ignorant of his designs. We're supposed to know what the enemy does. And we'll see in this next section here that not all of the resistance to God and to his people come from an external overt attack. Because look at what happens next. Joshua 9 verse 3. It says, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. And they went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and, and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? So God's people are going in, they're conquering the land, and, and these Gibeonites are pretty cunning. They say, well, let's make a peace treaty with them, with them not knowing who we are, so that we can get them to agree not to wipe us out, but also we don't have to do what they tell us. So they're thinking this is going to be their strategy. It's not going to be this overt war against God and his people. It's just going to be deception that they'll use. They recognize that they can't beat Israel with their military, so they get some old dirty clothes, so it looks like they've been traveling for a while. They get some moldy bread, so it looks like they've had that bread with them for a long time, so that it was plausible that they came from a far country. And they approached Joshua and they said, hey, we are not from here. We're from really, really far away. And you guys are pretty awesome. So why don't we just make a peace treaty? It'd be great if you had this treaty with us from, from these people from this far off country. And at first, this is a little bit suspicious to the Israelites. I mean, if they're from a far off country, why do they need a peace treaty? Like God had given them limits to what they were supposed to conquer. They weren't supposed to conquer the world here. There was a, a specific land they were supposed to conquer. So why would someone from a far off country even be worried about it? And also if they came from so far away, how did they already hear the news about what happened at Ai, get their provisions together and make this long trip, long enough for the bread to get moldy and their clothes to wear out? How did all of that happen so quickly? So there are holes in their story. And so Joshua's guys at first push back and they say, well, what if you don't live in a far off country? What if you live here? So they keep going. 
Verse 8, it says, they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come. They never say what it's called. Where are you from? Oh, it's far. Far. Real far. You've never heard of it. I'm sure you've never heard of it. So, so we've come from real far away. And here's why we've come. Because of the name of the Lord your God. Now, everything they're doing here is in the name of actually resisting what God is doing in their land, but they know how to talk a good talk. So they say, for we've heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provision in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So look what they do here. Besides the outfits and the moldy bread, they're really great at flattery and God talk. I mean, they've heard about God, they, they know their theology, they know the stories of God, and they use that God talk to convince the Israelites that they're telling the truth and to take advantage of them. So they're using the virtue of these people against them. The, the Gibeonites know that these people in Israel are devoted to God, so maybe they could use that devotion to fool them into trusting them. I mean, they've already heard the stories about how these people are very constrained by their belief in God. Like God told them to go take Jericho and not take any of the wealth from the city. And except for one guy, they, they obeyed those commands. They, they were constrained because they believed God was commanding them what to do. So he knows these people are going to try to keep their word. He knows that they're going to keep a covenant. So if, he can deceive, if they can deceive them with this pious God talk, if they can use the fact that they're too virtuous to break a covenant, then they can get them to sign the deal before they really understand it and they can earn themselves some peace. So these people didn't wage war on them from the outside. They pretended to be on the inside, and they did their damage from within. They preyed on the virtuous, and they used their virtue and their gullibility against them. And this is a common way that the work of God is opposed on an individual level, on a relational level, and on a church level. Now, on an individual level, the work of God is often opposed by insiders, who write and who tweet and who speak from a Christian perspective, they say, but then sometimes unwittingly subvert the faith from the inside. So it's easy for a speaker to come along and, and use Christian language to make an emotional appeal, but then while they're doing it, they undermine biblical Christianity. And so some of the best-selling books today uh, among Christians are books that would do things like, say, that the message of Jesus and the message of the Apostle Paul contradict one another where they pit Jesus against Paul, and, it, and they can almost make it sound noble. Well, it sounds good. Jesus came, and he taught the real religion, and then Paul came, and he kind of twisted all of that. So let's just get back to Jesus, which sounds like a good thing. But in reality, all of the words that we have of Jesus were written by other apostles. We don't have any books that Jesus wrote with his hands. Paul was appointed by Jesus. Paul was accepted as an apostle. His words were accepted as scripture from, from the beginning. And so, so there is no pitting Jesus against Paul and still having anything left of Christianity, but it sounds really noble. 
It can sound really good. It can sound like an attempt just to get back to the real thing. There are other popular Christian books that will use some of our virtues against us. So, for example, they'll tap in to the right desire that Christians have, and I think like a new unearthed desire that Christians have to do justice in the world, but then they'll import a totally false view of justice. And they'll say, if you don't assent to this, then you don't really care about justice at all, which is really subtle. There are books that call us to find Jesus by looking within ourselves, by making ourselves the object of worship as opposed to Christ. And there are plenty of voices on Twitter. There are plenty of, plenty of fresh faces to, to speak to issues in fresh ways. And they can be misleading. You know, it's easy to spot the angry atheist who's mocking our faith. But the well-spoken, Christian-sounding voice in their Gibeonite garb can be much more subtle. And they can do much more damage. Man, I know so many who are wandering right now and unable to find a church because they know they want solid Bible teaching, but they also want a church that embraces so many of the different aspects that our culture is saying to embrace right now, and they can't find both because both don't exist. And so they wander disconnected, and so many even then turn from the faith at the end of it because, because they're looking for a mixture of Christianity with other things that the voices on Twitter are telling them that they should find. So on an individual level, it, it can undermine our faith. People will also use deceptive God talk as insiders to manipulate inside relationships. I mean, it happens all the time that we hear from women who are being told by guys that God is telling her that she should date him. Like this happens all the time. Um, you, you have a guy with apparently no game, and his only uh, weapon in his toolbox is, is spiritual manipulation. And so he comes and he says, well, if you were spiritually mature, if you were really hearing from God like I am, then, then you would know that God is calling you to date me. And the fact that you won't date me actually makes your relationship with Jesus a little bit suspect. And you think I'm making it up, but it actually happens all the time. Um, we, we hear this all the time. And then that sometimes there'll be a kind, humble, godly woman with a tender conscience, and she might be tempted to rack her brain and think, what am I missing? Maybe I am immature in not hearing from God. No, he's a Gibeonite. Like, run away. <laughs> Don't believe the moldy bread in the outfit. Like, this, this guy's not legit. And so there are plenty of people who will use manipulative God talk within relationships. People will also use manipulative God talk to do real harm at church. People who come and pray on the weak and pray on children, and they can be drawn to church. And they can know enough Bible to be able to employ really strong God talk to their advantage. They know how to flatter, they know how to spot weakness, and they work themselves into places where they do harm. And this is one of the reasons that we do background checks and trainings for kids workers and don't accept everybody to those roles. But it's happened where people have tried to strong arm their way into classes using God talk. They'll say, you're not being very gracious for not letting me in to work with kids. Jesus accepts everybody. Or why aren't you forgiving? Why are you bringing up my past? They'll use that God talk to, to work their way into a place to take advantage. They'll use the virtues of Christianity, forgiveness and grace and second chances, to manipulate their way into places that they shouldn't be. And then you see church leaders do the same thing. In the name of grace or forgiveness, they cover up crimes within the church. 
They allow victims to languish and predators to strike again. But they'll use Christian language and talk about grace and second chances to justify their complicity in those crimes. Or even they'll, they'll use the truth that Satan is an accuser to silence people who bring true and verifiable accusations against predators. And we see the fruit of that kind of thinking all the time in the news every week. So there are lots of ways that our enemy opposes the gospel. There are definitely forces outside the church that, that are opposed to it. There are cultural forces. There are certainly difficulties with governments at times, with churches in many places forced to meet underground. You know, especially during COVID, there's been a lot of talk about how we need to do more to resist the government. And I think most of it's misplaced, but, but not all of it. The pastors that I know the world over, nearly all, say that the greatest opposition to the health and vitality of the church comes from within it. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. I mean, the greatest villain in the New Testament isn't an outsider. It's not Caesar, it's not Pilate, it's not Rome, it's Judas Iscariot. John warned of people who would use the church as a platform for speaking wicked nonsense. Listen to 3 John 9, he says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who, who, who want to and puts them out of the church. So he says there's this guy in the church, Diotrephes. He's talking wicked nonsense. He's slandering. In the name of Christ, he's rejecting Christians. In Titus, there's this warning, Titus 3, 10, and 11. It says, as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So it's absolutely right that we resist the things that harm the church, but we almost always assume that all those things are on the outside. That they're the lies on the outside, that they're government forces on the outside, that it's opposition from culture on the outside. And we'll take really strong stands against those outside forces. But how often do we take stands against the things that clearly do the most damage? The deceivers on the inside. The predators. The false accusers. The slanderers. Who do all that they do in the name of Jesus. And for all of our stands against government, are there any stands against a professed Christian who slanders others, who gossips about others, who stirs up division on social media? Do we have the one-on-one -on -one conversations with a friend that we see doing those things for their good and for the good of the church? Paul says to take that stand, to warn a divisive person. And a divisive person is a person who divides. A person who drives wedges between us and the church or between us and other Christians. And again, this is not someone who's bringing a true accusation against an abuser. The abuser is the divisive one in that scenario. This is someone who's speaking falsely to divide or speaking intentionally to divide. And he says to warn him once, give him a second chance, but then don't keep associating with the person who would do that so readily because he's warped and twisted. So do we take those stands or do we only stand against the external forces that we feel threatened by? The Gibeonites come as an internal force. They come with flattery. 
They talk a good game. And that seems to cause Joshua to overlook all those holes in their story. And so verse 14, it says, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now there's some question about what verse 14 means, where it says that they took some of their provisions as opposed to asking counsel from the Lord. And, and I think that the author here is being sarcastic. He's saying these guys overlooked holes in their story, they didn't ask God about their story, but the people had moldy bread, so it seemed legit. Or they didn't ask God, but they did ask the bread, and it seemed to say that it was cool. So they hear the flattery, they hear the God talk, they look at the moldy bread as evidence, and they say, well, good enough for us, let's cut a covenant. So, so they took the evidence of the bread and didn't ask counsel from the Lord. And what this is talking about, we won't turn there now, but back in Numbers 27, when God was saying that Joshua would now be the leader of the Israelites, he gave him ways that he could inquire of God regularly, that he could go to the high priest, that he could then inquire of the Urim and the Thummim to be able to get God's guidance for specific situations to discern God's will. But here's Joshua, flattered, wanting to believe the Gibeonites. He doesn't go to God, and he makes a deal with them. So there's some guilt in the Gibeonites for deceiving, and there was guilt in Joshua for being gullible and not consulting the Lord, which is certainly a lesson for us, that, that just because a person seems sincere, just because a teaching seems right, just because your gut tells you to believe something or to believe someone, don't let that stop you from consulting the Lord. Now, unlike Joshua, we don't go to a high priest. Jesus, Jesus is our high priest. We go to him. And we can speak directly to him and ask for wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then we go to the scriptures to test things and examine them and see if they line up with what God's revealed. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we're called to test things and not to be easily deceived. So we go to prayer in the Bible, and then we seek out wisdom in the place where God's put it. We seek out wisdom in the Christian community. We don't go to pastors as high priests, but they're, they're there to be able to talk to us about what Scripture says and what God might say in a, in a situation. We talk to wise people who know the Scriptures to help us discern what's true. We wrestle through things with pastors and just other wise Christian friends to help us see clearly. We don't trust our guts. We don't trust our feelings. We inquire of the Lord. So verse 16, it says, at the end of three days, after they made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepharoth, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders said to them. So the Gibeonite deceptions really quickly discovered um, the people of Israel, when they find out that these people had lied to them, they want to kill them. But the leaders say, we can't, because we swore that we wouldn't. 
And so the people grumbled against their leaders. So here you see the integrity of these leaders. They made a vow, and even though it hurt them to keep it, they kept it. They swore to their own hurt, they kept their word. And even though in the gullibility of Joshua we see some of his failures, here we see him again being like Jesus. Jesus who swore that he would redeem a people for the glory of his father and keeping that word cost him greatly. Cost him his life. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross to redeem wicked people like us. People who didn't deserve it. Who were deceivers. Liars all. And still he went to Calvary for our redemption. Verse 22, Joshua summoned them. And he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you will never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Then they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So this account ends with Joshua rescuing the sinful, deceptive Gibeonites from the hand of the people who wanted to kill them. And even though it cost Joshua credibility with the people, even though it cost him, he had to keep his word. And these Gibeonites, who certainly deserved death, were saved from death by Joshua. Which stands as an offer of grace. Because today we talked about all kinds of people who oppose the work of God. People outside the church, who he teach lies that go against the truth of God. People within the church who would harm and deceive and divide and gossip and slander. And honestly, can any of us say that we wouldn't ever have checked any of those boxes? But the good news of this story is that when we repent and turn to the Savior and confess our sins, humbled like the Gibeonites were here, there is one who will save us from what we deserve. Jesus took on himself the the cost of our sin in going to the cross And if we'll turn from it and trust in his cross and resurrection and yield to make him our king and our ruler over all of our lives, we'll find forgiveness in life. Let's pray. Well, Father, in light of these truths, we know that we have a lot to confess to you. We confess that so often we are led astray by new voices, by pretty faces, by flattering speech by those who would use your name and words from your book to subtly lead astray. We confess that we inquire of our gut, we inquire of our feelings, we inquire of our desires, but often we fail to test the spirits and inquire of you. We forsake what you've given us in your Bible, we forsake prayer, we forsake the wisdom among your people, leaving ourselves as easy prey to deception. But Jesus, thank you for your perfection in all of these categories. Thank you that you always perfectly inquired of your Father. Thank you that you weren't swayed by flattery, by seemingly sincere speech, but you perfectly knew every spirit. And thank you that 
even knowing us all the way to the bottom, you went to the cross to pay the price for deceivers like us and for people like us who don't trust you as we should. Thank you that even though we were the people who opposed you and opposed your work, you saved us from what our sins deserved by your cross. And Spirit, we pray that, that the sure triumph of Jesus would encourage us. When following Jesus is anything but smooth sailing, when there's opposition, when there's rage, when, when our own flesh and the world and the devil stand up against us, keep us trusting in you. Keep us confident in you. Keep us inquiring of you. Keep us believing what you say over what deceivers outside and inside would tell us. Keep our eyes on Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.